everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Late Late Capitalism Show. My name is Jesse, and beside me today we have... Hello, folks. I'm Dean. <laughs> sorry, I, I was mid-burp on that one. I'm sorry. It's yeah, we not should, a great look. No, I like it. We should leave that one there. No, I don't uh, think so. I'm the one on his right, and my name is Chance. Thank you for the introduction, Dean. That's and right. to my right is... Megan. Megan's to the right of us on a lot of things. <laughs> That's true. Hey, That's... no. <laughs> That's rude. I'm kidding. Uh, Crypto live. Wait, sorry. Today's subject is Megan's behavior. Yeah. <laughs> this is an intervention. Yeah, I'm getting kicked off the podcast. We're, we're talking about Megan's ideological cohorts, a.k.a. Yeah. the bikers. <laughs> I have a biker gang-related and themed episode for you guys. Oh, so, really? Uh, talking about cool. one of the most tragically comedic uh, moments in Canadian history, something that is so unbelievably funny and slapstick and it would be like objectively hilarious if it didn't end with like multiple homicides well, you, you mean Sad. like when they throw the octopus on the ice um, is that a biker thing? No, that's a yeah, Detroit yeah. Red Wings thing. No, uh, that's a Detroit thing. What, what are you no, talking about? I don't know. It's the Hell's Angels. I was thinking Angels. of something tragic but comical. Uh, not even, not quite the Hell's Angels today. We have a couple smaller This sex, is a, this is we'll a, a family uh, pod, folks. It's the Hex Angels. That's right. Oh, speaking right. of which, we're going to swear. Yeah. Uh, Before we begin, obviously a great deal of things have happened in the United States since we last spoke. Uh, yeah, should we weigh on the uh, weigh in on this before we dive very in? quickly? Yeah. Just because we don't really have the resources or the oratorical ability, I think, to eloquently sum up what's going on in the United States. But I, I think I can. Okay. Uh, I think looting, for lack of a better word, Uh-oh. is good. Yeah. And anyone uh, who you see on Twitter, uh, any family member of yours. Uh, or just, you know, just brief acquaintance, uh, if they have any hesitation towards uh, the actions of the protesters and what is happening in Minneapolis and other places, know that they are uh, an enemy of God. Uh, they do not have your best interests at heart. Uh, and you should stop speaking to them immediately, probably. Yeah. I mean, chances are you've stopped talking to your Fox News grandparents anyways. Yeah. Uh, but give them our email. Uh, yeah. please, LLCS, please. CFRC at gmail.com, and let me talk to them. <laughs> I would love to talk to your peepop and your map map. I will. <laughs> I have plenty of things to say to them. Uh, I would just like to chime in and say that the injustice isn't localized strictly south of us. There's a staggering amount of racial injustice that takes place in this country every single fucking day. If you want to do something that is practical, a uh, big thing you can do right now that is similarly related to what's occurring in the United States is continuing to uh, email and call the SIU as well as uh, the various Toronto City Councilors to demand a public inquiry into the death of Regis Korchinski Paquet, who, if you're unaware, uh, unfortunately died during an altercation with the police. Very few details have been released officially, yeah. and to not sound conspiratorial, it does reek of... A cover-up, there's definitely oh, yeah. a lot that is not being told to the public. I sent out mass emails to several city councillors, including Gord Perks, uh, who responded to me today. Wasn't much of a response, but at least he took the time to say, yeah, I understand your frustration, but I'm going to keep emailing him until he says, yeah, I support a public inquiry. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Uh, it was really interesting when you sent out those emails because the amount of people that were like higher up that were like, man, I Jesse... From the late, late capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> it was wild, the, the, the response we got. Um, so 
everyone keep in mind that mayors listen to this. Yeah, that's so, true. So if you want yeah. to be a mayor, listen to this. Oh, <laughs> uh, my also, C- my CSIS handler was very, <laughs> very impressed that I was able to send out 20 emails. He's like, damn, he must have taken twice the amount of his antidepressants today. <laughs> uh, and just donate if you can. I feel oh, like yeah. it's is Toronto Black Lives Matter. The main uh, thing. Are there, like there, bail bonds in the yeah, U.S.? The Minnesota Freedom one. Fund does not need any more money. They have explicitly said that they have enough donations to handle themselves mm. now, so Put I would recommend the out. National Bail okay. Fund, or if you're Canadian, yes, Black Lives Matter Toronto is a great one to uh, donate to specifically because that money is being channeled into several different causes, but obviously the one at the forefront right now is the aforementioned uh, one, Justice for Regis, which yeah. mm. hopefully by the next time we record... Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll put some links on. in the description. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, if you guys don't mind, I would like to do a bit of a callback where we uh, we talked about shut down canada right yes remember oh, uh yeah. where it was only a few months ago actually it's been quite a while we've been inside a lot <laughs> time flies but i guess it's it's been a few months since that happened where you know different nations around canada were blocking railroads in order to shut things down and people were so upset so i love this moment where people are just even more upset yeah. <laughs> Where you see so many people getting so mad, and it's yeah. like they're looting our stores. And it's like, remember how mad you were when we blocked your rail? <laughs> oh man, I can only imagine how mad you are that they're burning police stations down. Like this yeah. is great. I want I want people to get right stirred up in their home and like popping you know, coronaries. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that the high blood pressure folks out there are probably having a blast. <laughs> yeah, the forecast for this week, uh, folks. It looks like we're getting a fifty percent chance of the cool zone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's all my notes say. Interesting. You want to talk about something cool? I'm gonna read, I, I'm gonna yeah. read you the title. I've broken our discussion today into several chapters. Okay. And the first chapter is named. After the individual and his trademark catchphrase. And his name is Wayne Kellestine, and his catchphrase is, Hi, I'm Wayne Kellestine. I kill people and sell drugs. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I thought it was just going to be hi for a second because you paused. Hi, like, my name that's is. That's a good one. <laughs> what? So let's get into it. Wait, was this guy, like, running for mayor? Or was You'll that, see. like, his campaign slogan? Wait, before we start, is this a Canadian story? Yes, it is. Cool. Exciting. Born May 1st, 1949, Wayne Kellestine. Not much is known about his early days. He's from the western area. I believe they ended up settling in St. Thomas. So, Wayne Kellestine. Where is St. Thomas? I don't It's kind of near, like, the London region. Okay. So, All right. western Ontario. Yeah. Anytime I hear St., I just think it's in the Maritimes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I'm like, oh, P.S. Hi, boy. <laughs> so we knew two things about young Wayne Kellestine. One is that he was a frequent offender. He had a massive criminal past with like dozens upon dozens of convictions ranging from assault to drug possession to B&E to vandalism. You name it, he probably did it. Yeah. The second thing we knew about Wayne Kellestine, even from an early age, is that he was insanely racist oh he used to sign his last name kelestine and the two s's would be done in the style of the nazi oh, lightning man. rune <sighs> he could have just been like a a big slayer fan uh, yeah you don't know this yeah. was 1967 oh <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah slayer wasn't chilling probably not much of a chance of that i like the i wish he did the superman s's instead like i did that would have been profoundly yeah. less racist but about as stupid yeah the, the cool s as man, all the kids used like to talk i about. like being a Nazi, not a great look, right? No. 
folks who don't like it. Hot Being take. a Nazi, yeah. like, directly after World War II sucks, yes. dude. That's horrible. And I'm going to tell you right now. If you now, didn't flee Germany and, like, you're just like, oh, I'll just pick up the Nazi ideology. Like, what are you doing? So, content warning. We're going to be talking about uh, Nazism and white supremacy. White supremacy more so at several points throughout this episode. <laughs> that being said, though, I promise you, every single white supremacist in this is a fucking comical goof who is so deeply incompetent and just fucking stupid that you might like to have a laugh at them. Yeah. So, Kellestine, like many men with his, let's say, educational and cultural background, got involved with bikers. Cool. Well, I, th- I thought bikers. you were going to say the police. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's coming later. I love cyclists. We should have more bike lanes. You know, rockabilly music really is that gateway drug. Like, we gotta... He gotta... does... He kind of looked like a rockabilly guy for oh, a while. Yeah. Like, he used to have, like, slick back black I hair. I that look. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, like, uh... I like it when the girls do the pinup girl style, like the uh, 50s no. pinup lady, Ooh. because you just know that they're insane. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, oh, shit, this is gonna get freaky. Yeah. You're a psycho. That's awesome. So. <laughs> Kellestine with his switchblade in hand. He yeah, would yeah. join the biker gangs in the 1970s. Uh, he would specifically join a group called Satan's Choice. There's a lot of very oh, edgy oh, biker names. Cool. No, that one's good, though. I do like that. If you guys had to create a biker I'm club, Satan's Choice. Our club name, we would be Satan Simps. Oh. And it would just be like me and our friend John just channeling our repression into riding motorcycles and yeah. just like gruffly, ah. not catcalling, but like cat affirming <laughs> a woman walks by <laughs> you go queen hey, i just want to let you know that i'm not judging you physically but i support your hopes and dreams as a person hey girl. you look like you're probably a doctor or something <laughs> hey, hey girl you look smart <laughs> we're whistling fight song <laughs> instead of doing the classic cat whistle <laughs> my biker gang would be the tunnel snakes oh, uh, they, do rule. they they rule and we would uh, if anyone tried to explain to us that, like, oh, that sounds like sort of like a Freudian, like, sexual thing, we'd get really mad. And really <laughs> but not, like, angry, like, biker mad. Like, we wouldn't beat them up. We'd just get, like, really red in the face and be like, p- p- no, Spattering. no, it's not like that. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> and then I wouldn't make eye contact with them. <laughs> I'm not gay. <laughs> no, it's not. That's not what it means. That's gay that you think I'm gay. <laughs> um... Oh, I haven't even had a chance to think about this. I feel like at one point I had a really good idea when I was a kid. We had uh, a group around school that a friend coined the Mafia. Yeah, oh, <laughs> that's uh, taken. I think, I think, I think we would run with that one. Okay. No, no, I think we could pull it no, off. You, no, you're like, uh, we're the cool mafia. No, yeah, yeah. The no. mafia as the name for a biker gang would be so funny. That's like calling your <laughs> hockey team, like, the footballers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just like, uh, people would be like, oh, so you're the mafia. And it's like, yeah, but like, the mafia? Like, make sure you say the. the. Yeah. Oh, you're like the band. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Kellestine was actually hoping to patch over to a larger biker gang called the Outlaws, who you may have heard of. They're still quite yep. a sizable biker gang, but he was considered too great of a risk. Essentially, he was a heat magnet. So remember, this guy had like dozens of convictions yeah. at the age of 18, and he was known for being like wild and unpredictable. So they were like, we don't want you. Man. He got rejected by, he had to fall on his safety that, biker that, gang. That must suck. <laughs> your backup, your number two. But you know what? To his credit, he didn't let it get him down. He kept going. He created his own biker gang. Ooh. And you know what the name Disrupt was? Disrupt the industry. I love that. He called his biker gang the Holocaust. Oh, what? come Are you on. Kidding? 
Okay. Come on, dude. What's wrong with him? Uh, he's insane. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's pretty clever. But I thought no. the I thought the whole thing. Oh, maybe this is like they were on a different tack because now most Nazis are like, oh, Holocaust didn't happen. I thought, yeah, I thought they were deniers. Yeah. And, like being like, yeah, this happened and it was fun. Well, like Jesus Christ. So he caught a lot of heat for that, so he renamed his club to the Annihilators, which is also. Quite Nazi, yeah, Jason. Great. It's really, yeah. cool. it's really funny that uh, the previous gang was like, ah, oh, you know, this guy's gonna bring a lot of attention to us. Maybe we don't want. And he's like, I'm gonna prove them wrong. I'm gonna name my t- my gang the Holocaust. Like, I don't want to. They, oh, <laughs> they didn't see that one coming. Really hammering the point home. The logo for the Holocaust slash the Annihilators was a fist clenching one of those Nazi lightning runes. Ooh. So he went all in on the branding. That's classic. So Celestine would be described by his fellow bikers as not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He would annoy his fellow Annihilators uh, with brash and stupid behavior. My favorite example being uh, they had a clubhouse set up. And to keep the cops away from the clubhouse, he used to just take, like, roofing nails and throw them in the parking lot. Just, like, throw them on the ground. Except he would leave them there. how did they leave? That's the thing. Like, the next morning, bikers would drive in, and his own guys would get their tires popped by the roofing (laughs) nails. He just threw them on the ground. (laughs) He never bothered picking them up afterwards. Man, that's... No, that's pussy shit. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to bend down and pick up nails. That's gay, dude. Another famous story of his takes place in 1989 when he goes to a motorcycle show in nearby london he would get insanely drunk he would assault a police officer and he attempted that's actually cool that is cool and he attempted to flee by hijacking a limousine leading to a car chase down the streets that ended with him crashing into the outlaws clubhouse (laughs) and getting arrested i i know i got i just beat up a cop i got to make a quick getaway what is the least conspicuous (laughs) and easiest to maneuver vehicle i can find in this parking lot (laughs) moron if you think about it limos are the motorcycle of cars <laughs> that's right just imagine i'm like hitting up a mcdonald's drive through on the way to just being like oh well, you know we're already i'm here. blending in yeah it's also <laughs> so funny that he crashed into the outlaws clubhouse yeah. the gang that rejected him because he was too much of a criminal risk <laughs> <laughs> so they had a bunch of cops so just brings, wandering around yeah so he brings the fucking cops with him Hey guys, I'm here to party. Don't worry, I got a limo. It was around this time that he began to remark, Hi, my name is Wayne Calistine. I sell drugs and kill people. Had he killed anyone at this point? Yes, he had. I'm actually really glad you had asked me that. He was never convicted for it, but it was widely believed that he was responsible for the murder of a London businessman, Giovanni De Filippo, in 1978. Okay. Where he walked up to his house disguised as a pizza delivery man and just shot him point blank. Oh my god. Never charged, but... The conventional wisdom oh. is that he committed this crime. Like, yeah. everybody believes that. And uh, given his reputation, it's not hard to believe that either. So another such uh, murder that he was involved in was that of a an individual. It was a biker he, he had killed that had killed a cop before. And they were like, okay, we're just not going to charge you. This guy just died mysteriously. Mm-hmm. We're never going to know. What's the boy to do? Uh, on March 12, 1992, during a police crackdown on both the Annihilators, Kelestine's gang, and the Outlaws, the larger biker gang in the area, uh, Kelestine was arrested at his farm on the outskirts of an area called Iona Station. 
Uh, he was found drunk and high in his living room, surrounded by guns, cocaine, and Nazi memorabilia. Aside from the Nazi memorabilia, Kellestine also collected Confederate memorabilia and Montreal Canadiens memorabilia. <laughs> the three worst organizations <laughs> in human history. I, like, choked when I saw that line in the book. I was like, ah, it really Honestly, does make sense. It just reminds me of Belleville Cops. So my Belleville Cops out there chilling and partying. <laughs> yeah. This one's for you. <laughs> that sounds like a classic Belleville Cop getup. Like, it was so... I saw and I was like, yeah, this sounds like Ontario. Yeah, yeah. Really, in general. Hanging out with SS uniforms and cocaine. A master class. So, on the similar <laughs> note of his Nazi affiliations, uh, he was known for going to local pride parades and protesting every single year That's in really London. Sad. Straight pride. That yeah. Sucks. Uh, he would show up with the Confederate flag and wave it around. One year he showed up with the Nazi flag, but they told, like, even the other bikers were like, Jesus, oh man, God. like, you can't do that. <laughs> So, he was known to have two close associates. You know, even shitty people have friends. Uh, one of which is a man by the name of David Concrete Dave Weish, whose father, Martin K. He has, Weish... He has, uh, David in his name twice. That's yeah, pretty cool. David Concrete Dave. Uh, <laughs> so, David's father is Martin K. Weish, who was a German immigrant who ran a uh, locally successful construction company. He also happened to be a Hitler youth. Oh, wrong? Like, he was oh, man. also a Wehr Wehrmacht veteran uh, who owned one of the largest uh, collections of Nazi memorabilia in Canada and had run in the 1968 election for House of Commons, Commons as a national socialist, uh -oh. winning 89 votes. Folks, not good. <laughs> Shit. 1968. Oh, man, no. You know all those jokes about like sawing off Florida and letting it like float into the ocean? <laughs> I wish we could do that with Ontario. I wish yeah. there was a body of water we could push ourselves yeah, into. We are probably <sighs> the worst province. It's us in Alberta. Just the Great Lakes. Like just like let the Great Lakes. <laughs> we'll just chop off Ontario into Alberta small like has an identity though. Yeah. Like they're awful, but like they do like care about themselves. They also have self respect enough to try and do exit. Yeah, you, that's you, true. Ontario has an identity too. It's uh like racists and immigrants. <laughs> Yeah, and that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that beautiful yin-yang combination. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Kellestine, around this time, also mowed a swastika, like a giant one, into his cornfield. Why is this that man you could see not in the helicopter. in sucks, dude. Uh, Putting so much work in your anti-Semitism. Yeah, that you're willing to fuck up your crop. Yeah, he, moron. He also joined the group founded by his friend Concrete Dave called Bikers Against Pedophiles, which was explicitly an like a homophobic confederate group. Yeah. Aww. Wait, why was it homophobic? Uh, because they would just accuse all gay men of being pedophiles. Despite Kellestine's claim to be a moral force protecting children from homosexual pedophiles, right. he often, or sorry, he made a home movie showing an obese man sexually assaulting a young woman at his farmhouse, which ended with Kellestine himself ordering the woman to bear her breasts for the camera. What? So this guy just made nasty ass porn in addition what? to everything else. Nazis gone wild. So, that knowing that you. the small Annihilators group couldn't survive, like, a biker war with the Hells Angels, they basically joined up with uh, another group called the Loners to form, like, a larger biker sect. So then they weren't really loners anymore. That is yeah. another very funny part of this. Also, just, just like, naming your club that, which has multiple people in it, but the, okay. Yeah, the Loners. Bikers are so emo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah the no next, one understands us. The Loners. These 25 dudes are my only friends in the world. It's like, oh, well, that's a normal amount of friends. So, okay. Yeah, that's more yeah. friends than I have, man. <laughs> so the, the Loners are closely affiliated with, like, the sad boys and stuff. Like yeah. That. <laughs> oh, no, the sad boys are coming. The Hells Angels had a Microsoft style of doing business, as in if they felt threatened by a biker agency, they would just offer to pack over its best members 
So essentially doing like right. corporate headhunting, but That's in the cool. biker world. They offered this to the loners that were going to fuse with Kelestine's group, but Kelestine was like, if any of you motherfuckers leave, I'll kill you. To the point where he pistol whipped a guy so badly who had accepted the offer that he was like unrecognizable. Ooh. Oh my gosh. So this Yikes. is like a serious ass dude. The only other person he was known to be friends with was also his protege. The closest thing we have to a hero in this story, a guy by the name of Giovanni Boxer Muscadier. Everyone in the oh story is named my Giovanni. God. They have the <laughs> best the names. So he was born in Windsor, Ontario in 1959, the son of Italian immigrants. He spoke with a thick Italian accent yeah. even to the very last day of his life. He was so self-conscious about this accent because he was bullied so much as a child that he would speak in a thick mumble to try and... Avoid yeah. people talking about that. He was also, since he was bullied so much as a child, he got really into physical fitness and boxing mm -hmm. to the point where he was a good amateur boxer. But he had gotten his girlfriend at the time pregnant, so he had to pursue a professional trade that wasn't, you know, getting your teeth knocked out for $40 a night. Yeah. So instead he became a biker. Well, here's the thing. He was... A lot of his friends said that he did this macho posturing to kind of, like, hide those repressed traumas of his childhood so he got into physical fitness and repairing motorcycles mm -hmm. which was actually his job he worked at a motorcycle factory from 1979 all the way up until 2006 okay and it was through his connections with uh, motorcycle repair that he got involved in the biker subculture one friend who knew him stated the following he didn't really want to be somebody anybody could look down on he wanted respect he also was known for being surprisingly non-racist as a biker and he hung around with wayne kelestine huh well he's so, like as an italian was at the bottom well. of the totem pole there pretty like because he grew up experiencing like a lot of like genuinely a lot of prejudice he was just like yeah i don't he literally said like i don't know why wayne says the things he says huh and i'm gonna find the exact quote because it's quite telling they all have a mother people are who they are they just have to be given respect look at how people look at us Boxer Muscadere when asked about hanging around with the racist Wayne Kelestine. <laughs> Wild. Like, so you might be thinking... I don't think he's an angel, though. No. He was still friends with this man. He's not a and racist. And was just not racist. But you know... But only a little bit not racist and kind of still racist. He so wasn't anti-racist, like, hmm. but he wasn't also racist is the thing. Like... The only reason he hung around with Wayne Kellestine is but because he had he a fatal... He was an enlightened centrist, but, if you will. But Wayne now thinks that he has friends, with, which justifies his beliefs more, so... Mm. Yeah, but I don't think, I don't think Boxer mm. Muscadere is thinking Bo this Boxer, dude. in am, 1980. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everyone in this story Oh, no, don't get me wrong. Continue. He's giving him a platform. He's going to do <laughs> yeah. some stuff in this where you're like, Boxer, that sucks. But comparatively, he's the closest okay, thing fine. we have to a hero. sure. And the reason why he stuck with Wayne so long is because he believed so deeply in the quote-unquote biker brotherhood yeah. to, like, an absurd degree. Like, if you were in the same biker gang as him, he was, like, a Wookiee. He swears a life debt to you. <laughs> he will serve by your side till his last breath. So he was and Kellis through his thick Italian accent, he sounded like a Wookiee, too. He Interesting. kind of sounded like, if you were making a movie for this, which the Coen brothers should, he would be have to be played by Sylvester Stallone because yeah. he was essentially just Rocky Balboa <laughs> if instead of taking up loan sharking he got into biking yeah. he just walks in he's like, I'm not a racist <laughs> everybody got mother <laughs> <laughs> so Muscadier as Kelestine's protege would get involved and rise through the ranks of the biker world to the point where he actually became the Canadian president of the Banditos Motorcycle Club Ooh. which is a high ranking position 
Unfortunately, he only really got that position because everybody else was arrested during a massive raid on the Bandidos. So he kind of got there by default. And this was the leadership style of Boxer Muscadire. Boxer was addicted to cocaine. His judgment was poor. He lacked political savvy, and he was not connected to reality, preferring to focus on promoting so-called biker brotherhood by devoting much of the time, much of his time to designing Christmas cards for his fellow banditos yes. instead of making difficult yes. decisions. That's <laughs> sick. That's so the cool. Michael Scott of a biker gang. That's so cool. He's just got like the pencil in his ear, his tongue's out. He's kind of like <laughs> squinting. He's doing so much coke. And then just, like, making Christmas cards for his buddies being like, yeah. you know what? This holiday is going to be great, and I'm just going to support my boys and, uh, you know, kiss that my homies goodnight. sound like, like the ideal life. Now, at this point, <laughs> Boxer also had to participate in criminal activities to pay his alimony and child support because he had two wives and multiple children. And he said, at some point, I think the articles on him were written by him himself because it's like he believed in the proud Italian tradition of always paying your dues. And I was like, did he write this? <laughs> so he found a new chapter of the Banditos in Winnipeg in 2004. By this point, Wayne Kellestine has been in and out of prison like five times. He's kind of yeah. floating in the periphery and he's not really trusted to lead his own chapter. So Boxer, he's the guy in charge. And uh, they recruit, they patch over another local like independent biker gang called Los Montaneros, which first off, nobody in the group is Spanish. Yeah. They just chose the name because they thought it meant the lone wolves. It actually it means doesn't at all. the workers. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's sick. And solidarity. Los yeah. Montaneros were led by an individual, a former police officer by the name of Michael Taz Sandum. Sandum. I thought you were going to be like, Led by the union organizer, Jack Layton. <laughs> now, <laughs> Michael Sandum is the most cartoonishly ridiculous character I've ever encountered in Canadian history. Was he named Taz after the Looney Tunes character? No, I, I will speculate. So Taz was a nickname he gave himself. Naturally. He's also very short. He's got a Napoleon complex. There was a professional wrestler named Taz who kind of looks like him, who was huh. also very short and just like, who's like a tough squat sawn off killer okay so i think he tried to take that name and give it to himself cool. sandum was born in 1979 a lot of nines going on 49 59 79 think about that what does that mean folks? <laughs> it's just a weird thing how this works yeah <laughs> it's a cycle <laughs> he was a theology student in college he served four years with princess patricia's regiment receiving an honorable discharge in 1994 now he falsely claimed to have served with the canadian airborne regiment which, if you're familiar with contemporary they Canadian history... They are canceled. For yes, real they now, are. they don't exist anymore. They were disbanded after... They got uh, the most canceled of anything ever. In 1995, they were disbanded because they had uh, essentially gone to Somalia, which is not a good place to go. Yeah, th- this is not a good start to any story. No, and they were involved in like extreme racism and, and torture and hazing. The Somalia affair, if you guys have heard yes. of it before. Wow. It was them. So <laughs> I had he, wasn't, no a part of, he cool. wasn't a part of that regiment, but he claimed he was to steal racist valor <laughs> so he could legitimately <laughs> impress the bikers he worked with. That sucks so bad. Imagine, like, stealing valor is one thing. Yeah. But stealing racist valor? Yeah, I will stand for my racist troops. So, like, like yeah, I was I was there at that KKK rally, and, yeah. then, and then your boys are like, I didn't see you. Oh, like, yeah? Well, what did they burn on the lawn? Uh, 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 I, oh, no, you caught me. <laughs> Michael, you know this. Michael, <laughs> Come just... on, we, we practiced. Shit. Yeah. God damn it. A picture of Sonic. Fuck. God damn it. It was Sonic you. No. <laughs> 
So Sandom, upon returning from uh, the regimen, would open a martial arts studio in Winnipeg in 1994. Now you're thinking, oh, does he know karate? Does he know kung fu? No. Listen up. He created his own style of martial yes. arts named after yes. himself called Sando. <laughs> in his pamphlets That's promoting sick. his studio, he claimed to have won 12 martial arts competitions in Canada, the United States, and South Korea, and yep. have a six-degree black belt in Huarang Kempo, a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu, and a fourth-degree black belt in Taekwondo. None of this is true. Yeah, that's cool. He claimed that he was trained by Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal, <laughs> Don Insanto, and Bill Superfoot Wallace. Obviously, oh there is God. no proof for any of this. He claimed to have invented Sando, which he described as... It has marvelous psychological effects, including improving one's life, and he referred to it as the modern warrior style, of which huh. he was the grand master, and it was designed exclusively for social winners like him. Nice. Cool. You you had to lean in to really do yes. Sando. Sando sounds like a really horrendous sex act. Like something that like you wouldn't like you'd look for it on Urban Dictionary and like wouldn't be able to find it because it was just too horrible. He does have the intelligence of an Urban Dictionary contributor yeah. as well. So he handed out like in these pamphlets advertising his school. He also talked about the various things he had been involved with, all of which were lies, including running security for Princess Patricia herself. A funny thing about that: Princess Patricia <laughs> died in nineteen seventy four. True. Yeah. <laughs> he was born in 1979. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so people saw this and were like, what? Well, his spirit <laughs> That's was true. with her. Uh, these pamphlets were also infamous for being, like, full of spelling mistakes. He spelled Brian Mulrooney's name with an O and two N's. Brian yeah. Mulrooney, saying he did security for him. <laughs> so four he years honestly, later. He might have. No. Yeah. Like, he might have. He might have. definitely did not. I think all the best people were involved with Brian Mulroney, so. I just mean, like, he probably found Brian Mulroney. <laughs> yeah, he was working for Brian Different Mulroney. Guy. Yeah, and he got, he got conned. It's like, guys, I don't know he why was, like, you say that. He protecting I some, like, wrong. ice cream parlor dude. If you're curious, his studio would close four years later after multiple complaints that he wasn't teaching them anything of value and that he was just, use, like, stealing their money. This is, like, the main section of Napoleon Dynamite where they, like, go to the martial... Okay, main section, there's one scene. Anyway, but in that one scene, the and scene. then he's like, yeah, I'm going to teach you guys how to be hardcore or whatever. Yeah, Rick Rick and then they leave and they're like, what a ripoff. So you're thinking, what could this guy's career path be? Well, wouldn't you know it? In October 2002, he joined the police. Cool. Uh, he started as an auxiliary constable for uh, East St. Paul. And then eventually he received a promotion to become a full-time officer. However, a short time after Wait, so receiving... Wait, so this is he, he moved out of Winnipeg and back to Ontario, you're yeah. saying? Okay, gotcha. Oh, no, this is East St. Paul, like, in Manitoba. My gosh, how many saints are there? There's, a, like, there's St. Thomas in Ontario and East St. Uh, Paul. It's all, it's all in the Maritimes, actually. <laughs> it's really fascinating. <laughs> so he t took some time off from work shortly after receiving his full constable status. Uh, he claimed that his father was sick, but in reality, he had actually gone to, like, several, like, basically biker conventions with, like, actual Hells Angels and, like, Satan's Choice guys where he was photographed by an OPP officer being like, is this your officer? <laughs> and when presented with this evidence by the chief of the East St. Paul Police Department, uh, Sandom basically said, fuck you, I quit, you can't fire me, which is oh. an incredible dumb guy move. Yeah. You're the addict. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are all on fucking drugs, not me. So... 
<laughs> he would then become consumed with a, quote, ambition to take over the outlaw biker scene in Manitoba and then Canada. Oh, I think, wow. I, I, think I know exactly where this is going. I think I... Uh, he, be- <laughs> he does it and he's successful. He believed himself to be far more intelligent than the average biker, which probably wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah. And he thought he could use his intellect and connive his way to the top. As mentioned before, he stole racist valor by claiming he served with the Canadian Airborne Regiment. Right. And he got involved with Los Montaneros in 2000, uh, sorry, in 2003, and then patched over to the Banditos in 2004 alongside Boxer Muscadere. Okay. So we've got all of our players in one place. Almost all of them. Oh. Now his preferred nickname was Taz, but the bikers actually called him Little Beaker, as in the Muppet. Oh. Because he talked fast and in a high-pitched tone. It's because he had a little little dangle. <laughs> yeah, it's because he had tiny little ding-ding. Yeah, also probably a, true. He had a little pee-pee, and they were like, ha-ha. Now, the Canadian Banditos president at the time, this is before Boxer, uh, he was like, hey, isn't this guy a cop? <laughs> so uh, they basically tasked Wayne Kellestine with investigating him to make sure he was on the up-and-up, because you're not going to lie to Wayne Kellestine. He's insane. Yeah. <laughs> However... <laughs> Sandom actually won Kellestine's trust over by being a little sycophant toad and just being Ooh. like, oh, you're the best, Wayne. I love you. That's cool. I like the Nazi thing you did there. That's cool. That's awesome. <laughs> Cops are basically Nazis. Like, stuff like that. And then Kellestine was like, yeah, no, he's good. He's good. This guy wasn't right a up. cop at all. We trust him. <laughs> so Sandom, legitimately, to his credit, was like a top-scoring sharpshooter and marksman. Like, very good shot. Okay. That's about the end of his positive attributes. Uh, his I don't leadership know if that's style. Positive, but okay. That's pretty cool. His leadership style was described as highly authoritarian. Uh, he gave members a rule book, like an actual nice. like, bound rule rules. book, pretty much, <laughs> that <laughs> forbade lying to a brother and coming between two brothers under the pain of expulsion. Yeah, bros before hoes. <laughs> Um, uh, put a sock on the door. Five second rule. Yeah. Kiss him before you leave. He also <laughs> abolished the position of chapter vice president after he got into an argument with his chapter vice president. Yeah. Giving himself 100% power over the club. Smart. Now, there started to be rifts between him and Giovanni Muscadiere to the point where Sandom tried to smear Muscadiere as well as the chapter of the banditos that Muscadiere was in charge of, of being like, informers and you know like that they were stealing okay. money essentially which wasn't true in the least yeah they were noble bikers yeah but the beef so muscadire is in toronto yep sandham is in winnipeg this becomes very important because this regional beef starts to spiral out of oh, control okay. gotcha and essentially kelestine had to choose a side was he going to side with his former protege or was he going to side with sandham Unfortunately, Kellestine had essentially been exiled by Boxer for the same reason that he'd been exiled by the outlaws, you know, years prior. Yeah. Because he's insane. Insane, completely. So this is where, so Wayne Kellestine joins the Winnipeg chapter, and this is where things start to get uh, quite unfortunate. Basically, Kellestine and Sandom start to conspire to eliminate the Toronto chapter. Okay. Originally, the plan was to, quote unquote, pull their patches which essentially means take their biker status from them. Right. It's not necessarily fatal, but that wasn't quite the plan they cooked up. Okay. So the beef that Sandom had essentially created got word to Houston, which is where the banditos are based out of, mm-hmm. and they would say, you guys need to s- settle this once and for all. And they ended up siding with the Winnipeg chapter and basically took official status away from Boxer's Toronto chapter. Okay. So now they're just dudes hanging out. Yes, but they wouldn't give up their patches. And in fact, they formed 
the No Surrender crew. Ooh. And I'm going to introduce you to the members of this crew. cooler. Yes. This is one of my the favorite A-team. parts. So first up, Paul, Big Polly Sinopoli. He was an Argentine immigrant that lived in his parents' basement. He was insanely obese, weighing in at over 400 pounds. Wow. Yes, Big Polly. He worked as a drug dealer, wasn't particularly good at it. But he used the status of being in a biker gang to, quote unquote, pick up chicks. The quote from Peter Edwards is, how many other 400 pound men do you see that have as much sex as he does? Yeah. That's pretty. That's pretty. That's awesome. So Big Polly, kind of a pimp. Yeah, he's cool. Big Big Polly's got it, baby. We've got the two Georges. George Pony Jessam, who was a tow truck driver that had terminal cancer that lived in a trailer. Oh, my God. He joined a biker gang to provide him with friends in the last days of his life. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, we're off to a great start. (laughs) What the hell? A fucking fat dude and a guy dying of cancer. A a, a fat dude who's just a pussy hound. (laughs) And then then a terminally ill man. And And these are the No Surrender crew. Number three. George Crash Caracas, who was a tow truck driver as well who uh, married his wife in 2005 his wife immediately was like please leave the biker gang why are you doing this you are yeah. going to get yourself killed he told her no it's fine i like hanging out with the boys <laughs> yeah next up frank bammer salerno a former loner with a long criminal record for fraud theft and drug possession he once caused the loner's clubhouse in richmond hill to be burnt down when he fell asleep when he was supposed to be watching the fire they had <laughs> oh my god i can't wait for this to be you guys after this podcast yeah. oh yeah <laughs> he also had over 30 heroin conv- convictions on his record he assured his wife that he was going Whoa. to quit the banditos saying yeah i'll do it tomorrow he basically just kept procrastinating and never got around to right. doing it. So we have a doofus, a white guy, a fat pussy hound, and a cancer patient. Yes. And then we also have Michael Little Mikey Trotta, who was happily married with a daughter. He had a good job working as a manager at a trailer rental company in Mississauga. After receiving a promotion there, he became adamant that he was going to quit the biker gang, but didn't. Yeah. That's what they all say. That's literally what each one of those people said. <laughs> the last two I'm people in the crew, Jamie Goldberg Flans, came from Montreal, where his father, Leonard, was a successful lawyer specializing in bankruptcy cases. He had been raised in an upper-middle-class household. He was also notable for being one of the few Jewish bikers oh, in the world. What? Oh How my did God. he join this group with all these other people? Okay, okay, anyway. no, okay. Boxer didn't care. There's yeah. a lot of anti-Semitism. Oh, is the main guy not in this no, section no, yet? No, yeah, Boxer, okay. Boxer wasn't a racist. We established Yeah, Boxer that. was cool. Sorry, I'm getting confused with all the he was also <laughs> He was also able to join the crew because he was rich, and he was essentially used as a bank for nice. his cohorts. I don't, He's the treasurer of like, the crew. That's a little, yeah. a lot. But yeah. anyway, continue. And then rounding out the crew was probably the only person who had credit, which was Louis Chopper Raposo, who was a former loner who at the age of 41 still lived with his parents in Kensington Market. <laughs> Does sound like a okay, loaner thing to do. That's expensive real yeah. estate, though, so I'm kind of jealous either way. <sighs> so, <laughs> the No Surrender crew refusing to give up their banditos patches. The Winnipeg crew of banditos, led by Sandom and Calistine, tensions are boiling. On March 4th, 2006, Sandom, writing under the pseudonym John Smith, emails all the members of his Winnipeg crew saying that uh, Houston supports Winnipeg and that they're going to deal with the Toronto chapter by any means necessary. I don't know why he wrote it as John Smith, but he did. So no one could track him. 
That's right. <laughs> yeah. So are you, so are you posing as the leader in Houston? No, no. He just said Houston supported them. Like he was just writing as under the pseudonym John Smith. He's like, like I, under I am, his, oh. from his own email account. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I am John Smith, and I am the I run this chapter of the, of the gang that you know very well. On March seventh, uh, Sandum and Kelestine along with Concrete Dave, that yeah. old classic, they would go out to uh, BC, a specific park called Peace Arch Park, which is right on the border. Since bikers aren't able to cross the border because of criminal offenses, they can actually go to this park because it's right on the border and like have discussions. Okay. So a lot of biker business is done here. And during this meeting, uh, one of the higher up from like the American banditos attended as well, and they basically said, all right, this is what you've got to do. Pull their patches. We don't care how. Concrete Dave would stay in BC and he'd be in contact with the other guys, but he would not follow them back to Ontario. Right. Sandum and Kelestine make their way back and they concoct this plan. Essentially, they're going to invite the Toronto, the No Surrender crew to Kelestine's farm. It's considered to be a neutral meeting place because it's like not in Toronto. It's not in Winnipeg. Neutral ground, right. so to speak, to help Sandum and Kelestine pull the patches of these guys. They recruit some more people, including a guy by the name of Dwight Mushy, who is a six foot three, insanely jacked kickboxer, who also was a hitman for the mafia. Yeah. Like a legit dude. Everything what, Sandum. Like the real mafia or chances? chances no. The, the actual mafia. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he rolled with me and my friend. <laughs> I'm surprised we brought him up in this, in this podcast <laughs> yes. today. But they also recruited another guy by the name of Marcelo Fatass Avarena. I just we we need cool biker names. Yeah, these are incredible. This is so good. He Marcelo also competed fat-ass? in MMA under the name El Condor. Ooh. But he was a tomato can. He just got his ass kicked constantly. Yeah, that'll happen. And then they had a third guy by the name of Brett Bull Gardner, who was a steel worker that was also a biker, which is the two gayest professions that have. <laughs> <laughs> we work hard, we ride hard. That's right. <laughs> so there was one other guy that joined him, a friend of Kelestine, but these are the main guys. You've got Kelestine, Sandum, and then the three recruits. They're going to be handling the majority of the work for this plot. Mm-hmm. It was going to, they prepared Kelestine's farm where he showed them his quote unquote wet work kit, which was essentially a barrel with hydrofluoric acid to melt any bodies that he would murder. Hmm. Yeah, not good. Did he get that from the episode of Breaking Bad? I uh, know, this is before. Oh, wow. Yeah, 2006. Yeah, big Couple brain on this guy. Uh, in early April 2006, to really spice up the beef, Sandum would accuse uh, Jamie Gold, sorry, Jamie Flans specifically of being an informant, and that was kind of like the tipping point where they're like, okay, we need to have this meeting in person to settle this shit. He's not an informant. We're going to clear this up. Because remember, Boxer is an idiot. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, oh, yeah, this seems legit. We're going to go have a meeting amongst bright biker brothers. He's a little trustworthy for a biker. <laughs> yeah. So... They agree to meet up at the farm, April 7th, 2006, at 10.30 p.m. The barn was full of rusting machinery, old furniture, and children's toys. The walls decorated with pornographic images of half-naked women riding Harley Davidson motorcycles. Cool. Classic man cave stuff. And, of course, Kelestine's usual Classic Nazi propaganda. Classic man rusted children's toys everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what I've got in mind. Uh, the No Surrender crew were asked... To stand in the center of the barn, Kelstein's like, "Oh, it's the we cleared out space there for you." And Boxer was like, "Okay," <laughs> in the bloody. center of the barn, yeah. above him in the right, rafters. Right, like, uh, could you just stand right in the center, right by this? Yeah, the big X the, in the middle of the <laughs> yeah. floor, please. Thank you. There's like a they have like a safe hanging from the yeah. wire above <laughs> no, don't them, worry like dangling. About that. 
so in the rafters directly above them was Sandum and Dwight Mushy, both carrying rifles. There was one person from the No Surrender crew that was a little bit late, and mm-hmm. he would come walking in. He would see Sandum in the rafters with a rifle, and he was like, fuck. And as Sandum tells it, Louis Raposo pulled out a gun and started shooting. In actuality, Michael Sandum just straight up shot Raposo on sight. Yeah. In the coolest part of the story, Raposo, who was known for giving people the finger, like every picture you took, he was just giving the finger. Yeah. That's this tough. is true. He died with his middle finger up. Yeah. <laughs> and as Sandum shot him, it went through his finger. No. And like killed no, him. No. But the no. other fingers on his hand were curled down. This is a Coen Brothers movie. It's unbelievable. Oh, my God. At this point, the No Surrender crew know that they're fucked. Like, yeah. There's so many it's armed time guys to in this farm. <laughs> they are literally surrounded. Yeah. Uh, over the next two hours, Kelstein frequently, frequently changed his mind about whether he was going to kill the rest of them or just pull their patches. As he was making this decision, he just kept getting drunker and drunker. And at a certain point, he just said, all right, it's time. We're going to kill you. Right. It was decided. So they were just they sort were, of hanging out, playing jacks and stuff. Uh, no, the rest of them were sitting on the floor. Big Polly and George Caracas were crying. Yeah. Uh, Pony Jessam just kind of sat there, like, "Well, I'm going to die soon, anyways," mm. and he was kind of just <laughs> neutral. And uh, Boxer just was like sad, but not crying. He was, uh, according yeah. to all accounts, he took it quote unquote like a man. Okay. So what they did is they marched them out to uh, trucks on the yard and they would have him sit in the driver's seat the guy would sit in the seat behind him shoot them in the back of the head goodfellas style yeah yep. and then they would load them up into the trunk of dwight mushy's car that was the plan they weren't gonna they didn't have time to you know acid soak them yeah they were just sucks, gonna take though. them to kitchener which is hell's angels territory and leave them in a field so it looked like the hell's angels had committed this killing you know yeah that that seems very smart let's involve another bunch of gang in this <laughs> fucking moron like gangs and, and motorcycle groups and stuff in ontario is just so funny to me because having like kitchener or like windsor as your territory just seems really <laughs> hilarious well, like, that yeah, sucks. that's because quebec was claimed like we can talk about the quebec biker wars another day because no, that's like, one of the most Canadian insane things seems so lame and not worth fighting yeah. over. rep my set king kitchener <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i'm the king of waterloo yeah. yeah yeah like we're coming out of hamilton hot <laughs> so as they were doing the job, Kelestine, of course, ordered that Jamie Flans be the last one killed because he's Jewish, and Kelestine explicitly wanted him to suffer psychologically as much as possible. That's of so course. Fucked. Yeah. As That's they got to fucked. that point, though, Kelestine was actually too drunk to kill him. He was just, like, passed out, essentially. Yeah. So he ordered Michael Sandum to do it. Sandum shot him once, but because of his nerves, like, he... He's oh, never he killed somebody it. this up close. Yeah. yeah. He didn't shoot him fatally. And then when they're like, finish him off, he's like, oh, my gun is jammed. To which Dwight Mushy, who is 6'3", and Sandum's about 5'6", literally picked the gun up over his head, aimed down the sights, and finished the guy off. And was yeah. like, it's not fucking jammed. So did right. the whole crew died? Oh, yeah. Uh. So then comes the process of disposing the bodies. As I mentioned, they're going to load them up into this SUV. The obese Sinopolis corpse did not fit properly into the SUV. It was packed into the other corpses, and they couldn't close the door. So as they were driving along the highway, it nearly rolled out oh several my God. times. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I mentioned, they were supposed to go to Kitchener to dump yeah, these bodies. Right. They did not have enough gas for this SUV. So they made it about 15 minutes away and just 
drop them in a random field. Morons. When they drove back, Kelestine, drunk and surprised, said, I thought I told you to go to fucking Kitchener. Uh-huh. The bodies would be discovered the next day, and an investigation would be launched shortly thereafter. Uh, Fifteen right. minutes away. Yeah. <laughs> so, the police had been watching this farm for a while and the next morning like they weren't there for the massacre but they were there for the cleanup the next morning and watched Kelestine and two of his associates just like scrubbing blood <laughs> off the ground and they yeah. were like okay they quickly put two and two together figured out okay the killings that happened here are obviously related you know it's not the hell's angels it's these guys in the aftermath of this michael sandham does some of the strangest things he <laughs> at one point hacked dwight mushy's email so he could send off an email defending himself, essentially. So he was pretending to be Dwight Mushy so he could write about how great Michael Sandom was okay. to try and ingratiate himself with the Bandito high-ups. Yeah. He wrote, Taz is not a cop, nor was he ever a real one. He's very far from it. All in capitals. Cool. <laughs> the police decided to let Sandom go across the border to this meeting in Houston with the Banditos because they just wanted to see what would happen. <laughs> Like, that's literally the thing. Yeah. Like, we just wanted to watch. <laughs> so he went down to Houston where he discussed with Bandito's leadership. And they're like, aren't you a cop? And he's like, no. No, no. He, he literally said, he's like, oh, you saw Dwight's email. Dwight says I'm cool. <laughs> he was supposed to be there for three days. He left, like, six hours after arriving, fearing he was going to be killed if he stayed in Houston yeah. any longer. He would eventually be picked up along with Kelestine, Mushy, Avarena, uh, Frank Mather, and uh, another man who turned crown evidence, so his name was stricken from the record. Right. And they were put on trial. This is the last thing I want to tell you. Like, this is the last part, because it's all about Michael Sandom, his character, and his behavior at this trial. Right. Which is comical. So he takes the stand. He liked to present himself as a tough guy. You know, he's an outlaw biker. He spent almost all of his time on the stand just crying and wailing about how it was unfair that he was being tried for first-degree murder. Right. Mm. Despite the fact that he orchestrated this Why massacre. exactly was it unfair? Uh, because... Because it was happening to him, Dean. He claimed uh, it was in self-defense. Right. You, you know, when you casually murder eight yeah. people execution style in self-defense. <laughs> He delivered what was called a lie. I guess he was a true cop in that way. <laughs> he covered it up. Yeah. <laughs> he And he killed them from behind. Yeah. So he delivered and it was self-defense. a lie-filled fusion of self-pity and selfless heroism in which he stated that he had been a hero right. trying to infiltrate the bikers undercover and that he had intentionally made sure the vehicle didn't have enough gas to make it to Kitchener. Okay, so um, that's, that's how you ensure that either you're going to jail... <laughs> Or you die, die if you don't go yeah. out. Yeah. And remember, like, the Crown refused to offer him yeah, true. protection. They're like, no, we don't trust you to be a witness because you just can't stop fucking lying. <laughs> so he just like, he didn't tell his lawyer about this. He just did this. Yeah. On the spot. It's a fucking liability when for he, everyone. When he mentioned that he served as a bodyguard to Princess Patricia, the lawyer for one of his uh, co-defendants pointed out, you know, that she had died shortly after he was born. Right. <laughs> Just as a chance to discredit him and essentially push more blame on him, which I respect. In response to this, Sandom looked very confused and stunned for a moment before saying that it was not the Princess Patricia of Windsor, but rather another Princess Patricia with the exact same name from a different country oh. that he could not remember. Windsor, Ontario. So oh, wait. <laughs> he, he couldn't remember? Yeah. <laughs> No, no, it wasn't that one. It was one. a different princess. She goes yeah. to a different school. <laughs> <laughs> she lives in Niagara somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the stand, Sandom claimed that he had infiltrated the banditos on his own initiative right. and attempted to bring them down from the inside. 
He was unable to explain to the Crown attorneys why he had repeatedly denied to the police after his arrest on June 16, 2006, that he had been present at Kellestine's farm on the night of the massacre, however. So once again, just him being caught in a lie. Yeah. As he continued to cry out his eyes, Sandham testified that during his stay at Kellestine's farmhouse, the latter had wanted to kill a rabbit, but Sandham had stopped him, acknowledging the sanctity of life of the small creature. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Incredible. He's just up there. Oh, my God. Ad libbing. I, <laughs> I was in this way, like Jesus Christ of Nazareth. <laughs> and then in classic cop faction, he claimed that he did not kill Raposo, but his gun had accidentally discharged yep. through the man <laughs> while he was up in the rafters. Guys, that happens so much. It's crazy. Yeah. Everyone's guns are just going off. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's wild. So... <laughs> What are the odds that every murderer in Canada just has their gun randomly go off? At this time, he was described by Peter Edwards, who would literally write the book on this, as being the George Costanza of the biker world. (laughs) No fucking way. Which is one of the greatest quotes. I'm not not a biker, I'm an architect. (laughs) He was just up there, lying his ass off, and it did not work. On October 29, 2006, the jury refer- returned 44 guilty verdicts for the first-degree murder of the No Surrender crew and four for manslaughter, believed to be the largest number of murder convictions ever produced from a single criminal proceeding in Canada. Wow. Kellestine, life in prison. Sandum, life in prison. Mushy, life in prison. The two architects of the massacre and then the guy who had so many bodies on his yeah. name that there was no way they could let him out. Yeah. Unfortunately, our hero, Boxer Muscadere, died, and Peter Edwards summed him up very nicely. Boxer's fatal flaw was that he didn't discriminate between false and real brotherhood. If someone played the brotherhood card, he was vulnerable. It was a pretty good way to manipulate him. Some things were sacred, and brotherhood was. It's funny, some of these guys do have moral codes. Maybe not like ours, but to Boxer, brotherhood and family trumped everything he was a fast and furious character yes. in real life yes boxer driving down the highway he looks over <laughs> to that nazi bastard and then gets domed <laughs> just this is one of the strangest and wildest events in canadian history where every single person involved is just like an absolute moron yeah incapable yeah. of doing anything else yeah this is what like i i'm no expert on biker uh culture or psychology or anything and i'm sure there's been a lot of really excellent work done done on these gangs but it seems like so childish like every every facet of it is like a like no girls allowed club basically <laughs> She's like, oh, I just want to uh, hang out with my bros. But you also have to realize, like, these are all people who couldn't get into, quote unquote, actual biker gangs. Yeah. Like, we're following yeah. a bunch of people making their own club. Yeah. You know what I mean? These it, guys are all burnouts for yeah. various reasons. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like, um, you know, saying that you couldn't get into, like, a book club or something. So yeah. then you, like, read the book at home <laughs> and, like, talk to yourself in the mirror about it. Yeah, like, but, that's what that's what they end up But you're up not doing. reading a book. You're reading, like, the back of a shampoo bottle. Yeah. The only guy who who achieved, like, anything of substantial value, which was Boxer, got it only because all the other major banditos got arrested. Yeah. He literally got the role by default and spent all of his time and energy just designing Christmas cards. Like, this is is just a group of failed gang members. Yeah. And somehow they all got beefed up against each other. But the issue is... This is what happens when you're an old dude and you're a fail son. 
uh, and you just you didn't really grow up playing video games because <laughs> if all of these guys just like were on Fortnite, like none of this would have happened. And it would have been the same amount of slurs too. They could have yeah. had their cake and yeah, it you too. could have been just as much of a Nazi and just played Modern Warfare. Yeah, yeah if if the dad came in while they were like killing those men. If the if the dad if the <laughs> yeah, dad my dad walks in on the execution are you winning son yeah are you winning son <laughs> they would have to say no oh in shame like, they certainly did not win the relationship between Kelestine and Sandom is so fascinating where they really were two sides of the same coin yeah where you had like the actual legit psycho killer uh, uh-huh. and then you had the wannabe like tough guy who is just like a little smarter than everybody else but still just an incredible idiot on the the, like you saw yeah. when he started talking to anybody that was regular they were like wait didn't this person die four years after you were born <laughs> yeah. like, uh. like uh, on the virgin versus chad scale they're all virgins yeah. like yes. every single person involved like some of them just seem to be like bottom of the barrel picks which is okay but like if you think of them on the grand scheme of things when it comes to a biker gang you probably don't want bottom of the barrel picks let's okay. let's let's rank them i actually yeah, want to no, see I, like i for me like ranking them i think uh sandom's my number one because he like me is like a brain genius <laughs> uh when it comes to in relation to the other people on his podcast 10 moves ahead. or <laughs> <laughs> i think big Polly. Is number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. hard to argue against Big yeah. Polly. He went down swimming in it. Just joined a gang to get trim. Yeah. My man was oh, 400 what pounds. What kind of word? Just cruising for strength. This Stop man was saying all this. 400 the pounds. <laughs> and he was like Winnie the Pooh. He was all up in that honey pot. Oh, yeah. It and was, we, It was stuck on his big head and body. Yeah, and we do stand a king. You know what? There's uh, like This is such an aside, but there's uh, a juggalo that oh, yes. is very similar. <laughs> and he has a video with stitches where... Where he holds an AK-47 underneath his gunt and, yes. and uh, it, like busts it out when he feels like it. And girls always twerk on his big fat belly. Can we do a what? joint episode yeah. on Juggalos? You and me? Yeah, I would love I'll, to. I'll talk about their wrestling company, and you can just talk about the Juggalos. I, I imagine, I imagine Big Polly just having like these girls in bikinis, literally twerking on his belly. Yeah, so cool. But, okay, are fem- I've never, I don't really know that much about Juggalos. Are the female Juggalos? Cute? Juggalettes. Like, Juggalettes. Okay. Are, are they cute? Term. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, like, are, are the depends. videos of, like, them, like, twerking on these really big dudes, like, is this, like, an attractive thing, or is the whole... Megan, like, all it, women are queens. Yeah, that's okay. right. Sorry. <laughs> Megan, are you saying that... Are you women, to, sorry. women cannot be beautiful? Wait, yeah. Come, what? Huh? <laughs> They're actually inherently drop-dead gorgeous, so I don't know yeah. what you're... I am cutting it. I'll keep it as an MP3 <laughs> no, for us. No, yeah. this is staying in. No, no, yeah, no. <laughs> I think all juggalettes are... Uh, to all my juggalette queens out there, you are queens. Don't Absolutely. listen to what Megan yeah. has to say. If She's you... a woman hater. She actually just got done reading <laughs> yeah. the Scum Manifesto. Like, we have me Megan on the pod uh, to just appeal to the fascist portion <laughs> of our of our <laughs> listenership. We were gonna, she we... says the things that we the can't get away with saying. The more funny jokes you make, the better you're going to feel when I take all those jokes. <laughs> 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 on you we don't say anything funny I on this say, I, I started the podcast by saying we were going to talk about megan's behavior and here yeah, it is on, here on display uh, yeah it's like they really were kind of close to jugglers because they're just guys that like to hang out and do drugs yeah like most of them weren't like hardcore criminals at least in the no surrender crew you had like louis raposo who had like an actual record 
And Giovanni Boxer Muscadere, who was a biker but really didn't spend any time in jail. Yeah, he was just nice. a cocaine. He was making Christmas cards. Yeah, he just liked fucking punching people, doing Christmas cards, and snorting coke. Like, yeah. Honestly, I'm two-thirds of that. <laughs> like, I identify with Boxer a great deal. He also showed that the noble Italian could eventually strive and achieve their driver's license. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, my God. He is Italian excellence. Yeah, he, he, atri- he achieved the Italian ex- excellence of being executed in a farm yeah. in the middle of nowhere. In a car. Yeah. Even though he wasn't in the mob, he died like a mobster. Yeah. This man is double dipping. He's, He's very so cool. cool. <laughs> uh, like a calzone. He's double dipping. The Coen yeah. brothers, I know you're listening. We should write a screenplay. I might. <laughs> you know how um, like criminal biker gangs or whatever are considered like 1% biker gangs? Like they're called that because the like one percenters like harley, yeah. harley davidson was like 99 percent of biker gangs are like law abiding yeah. and like cool and then they're like haha okay well we're gonna be the one percent but like w- what is a non-criminal biker gang like are there any <laughs> maybe it's, just it's like the old if you're like your friends that just go for bikes on weekends or something but well, like everyone you hogs. ever hear of yeah. is gonna be a criminal one well what, what it is hogs. is uh like there's a lot of groups of people that are like just bike hobbyists Mm. like it's similar to um like they wouldn't probably call themselves a biker gang yeah but they might yeah um but it's usually just people trying to show off like hey i i upgraded my my hog this way Mm. (laughs) they're just showing off their hogs (laughs) i'm constantly upgrading my hog i I did the yakuza thing where i put a diamond in it so it feels more pleasurable yeah they're sitting back all it does is cut up my hands they're like man i got a pump i I don't like it any better (laughs) but uh yeah so i feel like they're it's just like i don't know motorcycle hobbyists and stuff like that are definitely a thing and like yeah there's big conventions and stuff like that not everyone's just a fucking absolute delinquent true um but like the ones that are those are the ones that we hear about like i know that there's a tons of biker groups that do a lot of charity work and stuff right Mm -hmm. and like in uh, what uh teddy teddy bear drives those were a thing for a while yeah where they'll like round up toys for kids and stuff like that and uh like you know there's like they'll do makeshift parades just because it's a beautiful day and they're yeah. like yeah we're coming by your neighborhood as this long time. as you're not like a hell's angel which is the dominant gang in canada you're like you're there's probably a better chilling. chance yeah, yeah of you being like low-key yeah. laid back like you're just like smoking cigarettes with your buddies on a sunday because it's a gorgeous yeah. day before we you just hang up, out in front of the tim hortons for like four or five hours because you have nowhere else that's to what be. every man in canada does <laughs> yeah. every day yeah i would like to share a story <laughs> about what's going on in the u.s that is completely light-hearted and good Ooh, and it's it. not like a cop hugging, you know, a black person before. That's very hard. Well, that's like the thing that people have been sharing around of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The cop, hug, yeah. the cop like, hugs the black. Like, he yeah. knelt with us and, yeah, yeah. and then like, opened fire the into a crowd. I was say, the cop hugs the black person, and then you see people in the side. And it's like the caption just says like. Oh, don't worry. The safety is on. (laughs) (laughs) This one is also the first time I'll ever apologize to anyone, which is I've officially squashed my beef with K-pop Twitter because last night, Dallas police launched an app, which is essentially a snitching app where they're like, you'll remain anonymous, but you can send us videos of people, you know, protesting. The K-pop Twitter got a hold of like this app and said, send them your fan cams. Send them pictures of BTS. Just send them everything you can to the yeah. point where it's overloaded. Their service was overloaded within half an like hour. Half an hour. Just like seventy-five trillion videos of <laughs> BTS. Yeah, I was gonna say like. 
4K Ultra HD, like, <laughs> yeah. 10 second videos or gigabytes and gigabytes it's, of data. You're seeing every individual pore. It's all just, these t- yeah, you're like, yeah, it's, it's all Jung Hee and Jin. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> Jim, yeah it is. it's Jim and dancing for like three hours or something like that in 4K Ultra HD. And I have to apologize to them. Sometimes your weird, insane, cultish twitter sometimes it's good yeah also good was the guy who hijacked the chicago police radio feed and played first uh yugoslavian music and then after chocolate rain yeah and a little closer to home uh i saw an image of uh protesters in toronto in front of a police lineup and they had donuts on fish just waving it in their faces another good one which a friend of a friend of mine sent me was uh there was a guy who was on the outskirts of that protest in toronto Mm -hmm. uh the one specifically like the blm one but also about specifically regis kuchinski packet and this guy was wearing a screwdriver shirt which is a uk nazi metal band essentially and this guy was just bullying the guy with the shirt he's like and, like, the Nazi had, like, a couple is. feet on him, but he was just terrified. Oh, yeah, but the Nazi was, like, built, like, a fucking pile oh, of yeah, shit. Oh, no, yeah, no, yeah. My man, oh, he could also, not. Also, he had a podcaster body. For also, sure. anyone, <laughs> anyone out there listening to this podcast that thinks Screwdriver is a genuinely good band, regardless no. of politics, can Fuck go you. suck my yeah. ass. Wrong again, liberal. Suck it's, my nuts through Chance's ass. I yeah. want him <laughs> to suck on his nuts, uh, suck on his ass so hard, my nuts get pulled into a gravitational pull. Okay, we're gonna uh, go now. Grab so. my ass what? so hard. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thanks Wait, for what? listening. No, 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 I want to. I want to keep it. Where does this go? This has been the biker episode. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Shoot us an email at llcscfrc at gmail dot. Com. Uh, yeah, and thanks for listening. Send yeah. us your BTS fan cams. Crash <laughs> please, the email. <laughs> yeah, I want I want Jimin videos, and I also want that guy who got his face plastic surgery up so he could look like Jimin. Oh, that's the cool. white English dude. Yes. Yeah, he's yeah, he's cool as like shit. You know what we're calling I just want very well fucking adjusted. You know what we're calling our biker thing? This is the last thing for the podcast. You know what we're calling our screenplay? Yeah, Wild Pogs. Yeah, and we're out. See you folks next week. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek and the Rodnashoni peoples.